Louie. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beat the Clock, wherein Phil and I try to come up with endings for movies before their inevitable sequels hit the big screens. Yes, that's right. It's the new game show that's sweeping the nation on every continent. It's Beat the Clock and we're getting ready to go. Tick tock, tick tock. Exactly. Uh, Phil, as you'll explain in a moment, we're doing a couple of films today that uh, uh, sequels are imminent or expected, I think is a good way to put it. So why don't you tell people which, which movies we're going to be talking about? Yes, well, we will be doing after the endings for Tron Legacy, which was the most recent Tron film. Since then, it's all gone a bit quiet. And also Super Troopers, because Super Troopers 2 is heading our way. A trailer's recently dropped. We're going after the ending before the film itself hits us. And and for the record, neither of us has watched the trailer yet, so any uh, you know any correlations to it are purely coincidental. We're going into this as information free as we can with regards to right. the sequel, right? And while and while Tron Legacy doesn't have uh, a sequel on the books, or at least certainly not as imminent as Super Troopers does, it's it's sort of one of those things that's pretty much been talked about since Tron Legacy came out in 2010. It sort of seems like Disney doesn't quite know what to do with the franchise, but they don't want to give up on it. So I, I think it's inevitable that at some point we're going to see another Tron film in, in some format or another. Yeah, I, I think it could well be a reboot or something. Or maybe the end right. of Game of Thrones will turn out it's all been inside a computer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the latest. It's it's all been a big long Tron con. I mean that's that's a, a long shot, but it, but certainly a possibility. I wouldn't put it past uh, George R R Martin. Well, if it does happen, you heard it here first, and uh, George R right. R Martin could be listening now. Maybe he's going to change the ending because he hasn't finished his book. Right, right. He's like, oh darn it, they figured it out. Now I got to do something different. <laughs> uh, so those are the two movies we are trying to beat the clock on. And Phil, what about the year of films we're going to be discussing? Yeah, we'll be looking at our top ten favorite films from 1958, and there was some cork, isn't that? Yeah. Yes, yes, there were, actually. And I've seen some of them. Hey, well, that's, that's always a bonus. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Certainly makes doing these segments a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, the list does make a bit more sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, and I believe recently, Mike, you went, uh, boldly went where no man has gone before. Something like that. Uh, I would say probably several men and women have gone there before me, but not too many as it's a relatively new experience. But uh, yeah, so for those of you who don't know, and, and I'm assuming there's a lot of you out there who don't know this, but in Ticonderoga, New York, which is about two hours north of where I live and just a tick south of nowhere uh, in Ticonderoga. <laughs> it's a small town in upstate New York. And uh, in this town, a man by the name of James Cawley, who I believe has worked in the film industry for some years, has built uh, quite an attraction. It is a replica of every set from the original Star Trek show from 1960s. Yep. And he it's literally every set from the bridge to sick bay to engineering to the hallways to the transporter room they've been rebuilt to scale a 1-1 scale from the original blueprints and they're they are perfect recreations of the star trek set down to the props uh the paints the lighting the sounds everything so when you walk into this set it's it's kind of a weird mix of feeling like you're on the Enterprise and feeling like you're on the shooting set for the Enterprise because they do sort of <laughs> they do sort of have like the hallways going into 
you know, different rooms and from the outside it says it's one room, but from the inside it's a different room. It's actually set up exactly how the shooting sets were made on on the Desilu Studios back in the back in the sixties. Oh wow, that's so good. I got to go to it and take the tour, and it was really really fun. Uh, and it's it's just a really neat experience and it's it, the pictures are great i think we'll share them on our after the ending page on facebook so yeah we'll get that so check I've, that I've out the, i've i've seen the photos and they are even just the photos of them it was it blew me away the detail and when you mentioned the color you got all the colors spot on yeah yeah of, of the, uh, it just it was incredible seeing them and I, I, I can't imagine what it was like seeing it in real life but it, it's amazing work right right i mean the attention to detail is phenomenal and it's really fun if you are a fan of the original star trek series especially uh and if you happen to get up this way i, I do recommend stopping in there uh if not like i said at least check out the photos on on the after the ending page i think you'll be impressed it's it's a lot of fun so that was a cool experience that i, I thought you know our listeners would enjoy hearing about i know we have a lot of star trek fans in the audience like myself and like you yes yeah, so. yeah thought we would tell people about something a little kind of cool and quirky from the Star Trek universe. And always, it's always worth pointing out somebody's hard work to bring us something joyful and nice. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, well, I believe, Meow, it's time to move on to our films. So why don't we start with Super Troopers? Yes, well, Super Troopers was from 2001 and was by Broken Lizard. And it basically follows five Vermont State Troopers, Thorny, Mac, Rabbit, Jeff, and Rod. And they're based in the fictional uh, town of Spurbury in Vermont, they basically pull lots of pranks on the people they pull over, lots of goose, lots of hijinks, that kind of thing. However, they learn that due to budget cuts, their post could be phased out, so they end up having to solve a murder and bust a drug smuggling ring. They have an ongoing rivalry, rivalry with the local police department. Uh, the police uh, end up getting praised, though, by the governor, who's played by Linda Carter, uh, because they've found a load of shipments of smuggled drugs. However, our team of troopers find out that the police are running protection for the drug smugglers. It's a load of bad ones in the police force. But the highway post ends up getting shut down, but the troopers live to ride another day as they become new officers in the Spurberry Police Department. And that's Super Troopers. There you go. Not a real plot-heavy film, really. It's a comedy. Yeah, it's a load of like funny scenes and goings on isn't it really yeah it's like it's like a bunch of sort of cop vignettes humor vignettes like almost like a bunch of cop themed saturday night live sketches yeah you know threaded together by a very thin plot yes very thin which my endings won't be all that different from oh excellent yeah Okay then, Mike, what happens in your day after? Well, with the troopers now in place as the Spurbury Police Department, Captain O'Hagan retires and Thorny becomes the new police captain. The rest of the troop continues their usual antics, but they begin to take the police work a little bit more seriously. Eventually, they come across a smuggler named Amir Khan, who moves illegal pharmaceuticals across the U.S.-Canada border. Turns out that Khan is an old nemesis of Thorny's, having run against him for class president in high school and having won by spreading false rumors about Thorny having had sexual relations with farm animals. (laughs) Thorny is frustrated that his new role as captain prevents him from getting involved, and as Khan runs circles around his troopers, Thorny gets more and more angry. Finally, he breaks regulations and sets out on a manhunt for Khan. After a car chase that sees millions of dollars in property damage, Khan gets away and Thorny is demoted back down to a trooper. Oh, okay. Trooper Womack remarks to Thorny that it looks like he was a victim of the wrath of Khan, and Thorny <laughs> almost shoots him but manages to contain himself. <laughs> and that's that's my day after. Wow, excellent. All laughs at that point. Brilliant. I like it. Yeah, it nice kind of was. <laughs> yeah. Nice setup, yeah. but I like it. Because I didn't, I should have, I should have guessed it. I didn't see it coming, to be honest. <laughs> I did kind of build that whole thing around the fact that I wanted to get a Wrath of Khan <laughs> pun in there. So I don't know if that makes me uh, brilliant or maybe a little bit pathetic. But 
I, you know, it is what it is. It could be. You could say it was pathetic in its brilliance. There you go. Yeah. Or or brilliant in its patheticness. Yeah. <laughs> I, they sound sort of good. Yeah. And yeah. That kind it of works. Way. Okay. Yeah, I like it. All right. So, Phil, how about your day after then? The team's first proper day on the job involves a donut eating competition. The last one to throw up is the winner. Rabbit wins. It's not the best way to start the day, but it got rid of a lot of donuts. <laughs> However, they eventually head out and do some proper work. There is the usual traffic stops, and they go easy on the first few, but soon get back to the pranking those that they stop. They also call to other crime scenes, mainly to help take statements and do crowd control. While taking a statement from a murder witness, Rabbit sees someone watching who matches the description the witness gave. Rabbit gives chase, but ends up losing them. That's my day after. Mm, all right. Should be interesting to see where this goes. Mm. If it goes anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, what happens then with your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, things continue on as normal for a while. Thorny is actually happy to be a trooper again, as the desk life didn't really sit all that well with him. They encounter all sorts of actual crimes, along with their numerous traffic stops, but all of them have a distinct Vermont flavor to them. <laughs> They break up a counterfeit maple syrup ring, <laughs> recover a truck full of stolen L.L. Bean merchandise, break up an animal cruelty ring that is using stolen cats and dogs to pose in recreations of famous movie scenes for calendars, <laughs> take down a ski instructor operating without a license, and nail a group of teenagers who have escalated tipping cows into graffiti tagging them. <laughs> One day on a routine traffic stop, Officer Foster searches a car and finds a number of illegal prescription drugs in the back. Upon interrogation, the driver of the car reveals that he's just a middleman and that Thorny's enemy, Amir Khan, is back in town. Khan! <laughs> and I imagine that's exactly what happened when Thorny found <laughs> yeah. that out. Oh, excellent. Okay. All right. So how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Well, a few, a few nights later, the guys are testing a new strain of marijuana uh, that has been, you know, taken, and they need to see what it's like, though, in case they find it on the street. So, but, and then ribbing rabbit about losing the murder suspect. Thorny gets a text. Some FBI agents will be arriving in the morning to discuss an older case. Time for an early night, says Thorny. Mac walks in. I've got more beers, he says. Hell yeah, says Thorny as he opens a beer. It's a long night. The next morning, the supremely hungover team wait for the FBI. They eventually turn up. A tall man and a red-headed woman. We're Agents Fox and Mulder of the FBI. <laughs> That's my immediate aftermath. Very nice. So uh, what's happened then? Khan's back on the scene. What happens with your long term? Okay, well, Thorny is a man on a mission. He wants to bring Khan down at all costs. He sets up a massive sting operation. He gets a judge to release former state trooper Ursula Hansen, one of the cops who went to jail for smuggling drugs in the first place, uh, gets her freed from jail in order to go undercover in Khan's operation. He knows that her jail time will give her street cred, while her knowledge of police operations means he'll be able to get good intel that will be admissible in court. She makes her way into Khan's crew by posing as an expert in animal husbandry as part of Khan's new scheme to smuggle drugs across the border inside of livestock. <laughs> yeah. When she gets her arm stuck shoulder deep inside of a cow during a demonstration, Khan sees through her disguise. As he's about to kill her, she yells out the code words, get in here, meow, and Thorny and the rest of the troopers bust in. Surrounded, Khan has no choice but to surrender, and Thorny finally gets to place him under arrest. In the aftermath, the reformed Hansen joins the force as their undercover operative, and the super troopers are lauded by the governor once again for busting a major smuggling ring before going back to their usual hijinks and ridiculousness. 
And that's my after the ending. Lovely stuff. Always like a bit of hijinks. Yeah, hijinks are good. Yeah. So how about you uh, give us your long-term bring it home for us, Phil? Okay, well, Fox and Mulder explain that they're investigating the old drug smuggling ring that they broke in the first film. Some of the drugs had disappeared in strange circumstances and had resulted in a number of deaths. It had all got a bit serious for the troopers. <laughs> However, they're all rather taken with Agent Scully and proceed to sabotage each other's chances with her, although she doesn't notice any of this. The sabotage involves mouse traps. Hair trimmers, pepper spray, a goat, and a bucket of custard-covered crayfish. <laughs> While out on a routine traffic stop, Jeff sees a man who matches the description of one of the suspects the FBI are after. Jeff calls it in and follows the man to an old warehouse. Following him in, he's surprised to find the man, the man dead with what appears to be a CD buried in his head. Jeff turns as he hears a noise behind him. It's a very tall man with a mullet and strange eyes. I come in peace, says the man as he raises his arm to point at Jeff. Fade to black. Wow. Got some good mashups going on in there. Yeah, it's ready for the third, third one, you see. I can see that. Yeah. I like it. Yes. A little nod to uh, uh, I Come in Peace, if I'm not mistaken, also known as Dark Angel, starring Dolph Lundgren, right? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, which I don't think gets enough praise that it should for being, you know, a pretty bad, good movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like it. Yeah. I like it. Thank you. All right, very good. Well, uh, do you have any super trivia for us, Phil? Super trivia... Yes, there's okay, yes. So the whole film was originally going to be set in the 1970s, but I think that added a bit more money to it, you know, having the set dressing and costumes and the like. Uh, the, in the marijuana scene, the redness of the eyes was achieved by blowing menthol in their faces. That, Ew, was, that yeah. must have stung a lot. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like it'd be a lot of fun. In the cat game scene, Meow was said 11 times. Mm-hmm. And in the scene where Ursula hits Foster in the head with a snow cone, uh, there's a setup to show that it's the snow cone's solid, but they meant to switch it over mid-scene. Uh, so it'll be a softer one which hits them. But however, the switch did not occur during several of the takes. So the actor Paul Sota took a solid block of ice to the head oh, about geez. nine times before they got it right. Ouch. Yes, that's uh, that's got to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> but that's Super Troopers. All right, cool. Well, let's move on then to uh, another movie that, again, may have a sequel at some point in the future. I would be surprised if it didn't. And that, of course, is Tron Legacy. Do you want to give us a rundown about what happens in Tron Legacy, Dad? Sure thing. So Tron Legacy... Uh, 2010, directed by Joseph Kaczynski, starring Jeff Bridges, Garrett Hedlund, Olivia Wilde, Bruce Boxleitner, and Michael Sheen. Now, as always, we can't do a straight follow-up to Tron because we know what happens after Tron thanks to Tron Legacy. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of our follow-up to the Tron universe, but here's the events of Tron Legacy. So in Tron, Kevin Flynn was a computer programmer, got sucked into the computer world and fought the master control program and got back out into the real world. So in Tron Legacy, uh, the film starts in 1989. Kevin Flynn, the hero of Tron, disappears, leaving his young son Sam behind. In modern days, Sam, played by Garrett Hedlund, is all grown up, and while he's the primary shareholder in Flynn's company, Encom, he doesn't care about it at all. When Sam is asked by Alan Bradley, played by Bruce Boxleitner, to investigate a strange message from Flynn's old arcade, Sam is sucked into the Encom mainframe. He's forced to fight in the games, but his opponent, Rinsler, defeats him and takes him to Clue, a clone of Flynn who runs the Tron world. Sam is rescued by Cora, a young woman who is an apprentice to Flynn, and she takes Sam to reunite with his father, who's been living in the grid for the past 20 years. While there, he discovered Isos, a sort of new life form that Clue considered abominations. So Clue betrayed Flynn and killed Tron, 
or so it seems, and also killed all the ISOs. And now he lured Sam here because he needs Sam's identity disk to get into the real world and impose his idea of perfection on it. And then a whole bunch more stuff happens. Yes. We'd be here all day. Um, basically, we find out that Korra is the last surviving ISO. Tron is still alive, but he's been reprogrammed as Rinsler. And Clue gets Sam's identity disk. Uh, actually, he gets Flynn's identity disk. There's a lot of identity disk yeah, changing Yeah, there's a lot of the old swapping back and forth. Yeah. Uh, Flynn sacrifices himself to destroy Clue and save Sam, and Sam and Korra escape to the real world. Sam meets Alan Bradley and tells him he plans to retake control of ENCOM, then rides off into the sunrise with Korra on his motorcycle. Yes. And that is the very complicated plot of Tron Legacy. Yes, very well done because it is a bit of a complicated plot and lots of different concepts and things involved. It, yeah, it's it's just definitely one of those ones that's hard to kind of boil down into a summary and still make it make sense. Yeah, yeah, but you did you did well. So, Phil, I know we've talked about Tron, obviously. It made both of our lists when we did 1982. How do you feel about uh, Tron Legacy? Well, when I first heard about it, I was super excited because I do love Tron. Uh, when I finally saw it, I thought it looked amazing, like some of the updating. And on the whole, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't quite what I'd been hoping for. I think part of me wants... I wish it hadn't been like a closed system. I wish we'd, they'd gone in and it was the whole... They were going around the internet and things, which I think lots, many of us thought might have happened. Right. You know, we see we see the developments in computers from when the original film came out. We, I think I would have liked to have seen a bit more of that with regards to the, uh, the plot of the story. Right, right. It, it was sort of a bit of a rehash of the original story, but with some added whistles and bells and things. But on the whole, I enjoyed it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a complicated relationship with this movie. <laughs> I, uh, I I don't disagree with anything you said, and I, I feel the same way largely. I mean, it looks amazing, and I, I still to this day am very angry that the Academy Awards didn't even nominate it for Best Special Effects. I've mentioned this before, and I'll probably mention yeah, it, it sh- again. Yeah, it should have had a nod for that. I, I mean, it should have won, but it should have at least been nominated. But uh, it's definitely I, – I definitely feel like the same as you. It wasn't the movie I wanted it to be when I first saw it. And I've rewatched it, and I, I kind of feel like – I feel like it would have been a better movie if they could have made a third one, if that makes any sense. Like I yeah. feel like yeah. they were setting up a lot of stuff and it was sort of this ne- this middle chapter in a trilogy. And without that end chapter, it, it isn't fully complete. And I know that's not really the basis for what makes a good movie and what doesn't. But I do feel like there's a better movie in there than people think sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I feel like, no, it just looks pretty. So I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I do like it. I, I, I wish I – outright loved it but there are some things i do love about it and it's just a it's just a world that i i really really enjoy so i, I kind of dig revisiting it still from time to time no i think you've yeah you've got the got it spot on there i totally yeah. agree with what you say it's certainly a complicated film both in terms of story and in terms of interacting with it as a fan yeah yeah well put thanks all right well how about you take us into your day after then okay sam spends the day showing quora the real world she finds everything amazing and it makes Sam see the wonder of the world once more. Quora finds the many food she tries most incredible. She'd never really tasted anything before and she's blown away. She soon finds out that not everything edible tastes nice when she tries some flowers Sam got her. However, <laughs> she starts noting down the chemical compounds of what she tastes. Sam is fascinated by this and even more so when she works out combinations of food can produce medicinal effects. Meanwhile, in another secret room at ENCOM, a computer server boots up and connects to the internet. At some top-secret command construction factories in a desert somewhere in America, a whole heap of new instructions have passed through the system and the giant 3D printers begin their work. That's my day after. 
Mm, very interesting. Thank you. Well, I will say there might be one or two minor uh, similarities in our endings. Well, I don't think we're going in the same direction, but I think there may be one or two kind of crossovers. It stands for a reason because it does – the way it's, it ended, there was a definite – kicking off point from there. Right, right, exactly. Okay, then hit me with it. All right, well, after a battle with the board of directors that leaves all of them, except for Alan Bradley, ousted, Sam takes on his new role as the CEO with relish. He employs Cora as as his secretary while she acclimates to the human world. With Encom's OS 12 now free on the internet, uh, that was a little thing that happened at the beginning of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were launching their new software, and, and Sam released it for free before they could do so. Uh, so with with it free on the internet, the company's stock has ridden a wave of good publicity and quadrupled in value. Sam sets to work on establishing Encom as a new force for good in the world, trying to crack the code of the ISOs so that he can discover the building blocks of life that might lead to cures for major diseases. Things are going along pretty smoothly for a while, and Sam and Cora begin to grow close. However, as Sam buries himself in his work, he fails to notice a subprogram that gets activated in the NCOM mainframe, Master Control Program 2.0. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's where we're going to leave it for now. Mm, okay. <laughs> All right, why don't you give us your immediate aftermath then? NCOM is still wait- working on computer technology, but have also started a new fast food chain, to the surprise of many. Yeah. It's called End of Line. And it deals in healthy, tasty food that actually cures various diseases. All thanks to the, the skills and work of Quora. She's also worked out a cure for cancer that Sam releases for free on the web. The various pharmaceutical companies try and sue Encom, but they survive, and the world begins changing for the better. Just as things are going well, all TV and computer channels are interrupted by a man in a strange glowing red suit. Greetings, humans, he spits. My name is Sark, and I'm here to cleanse the planet of humanity. The internet then switches off. Sark's forces in the desert begin to move. Wow. I love that you brought Sark back. I didn't even think about that. Oh, no, awesome. I, was, I was like Sark. He was, uh, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. He was a great villain. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, once again, I will just say to new listeners that Phil and I don't have any uh, – we don't compare notes before the episode. And again, only minor – there's like like a different beats but a couple similarities. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm intrigued then. Let's see what the, the, the similarities are but also where do you go with your next phase? Okay. Well, as Sam continues his work, the Master Control Program 2.0 continues to get stronger. It turns out that Clue had a fail-safe program in place, so that if anything was to happen to him, it would activate the MCP version 2. While Sam and Cora go about their lives, the MCP quietly converts unused lines of code and extemporaneous programs, such as old AOL accounts that were never deleted, <laughs> into code. Of them. <laughs> That's God. exactly it. AOL is responsible. Uh, it turns them into code to grow itself. Eventually, it becomes self-aware once again, containing the combined knowledge of the original master control program and Clue. When self-awareness hits, it breaches the grid and connects to the Internet, taking the new master Clue program worldwide in an instant. Suddenly, the world's entire electronic infrastructure is under the control of a computer program that wants to eliminate imperfection. <laughs> so, so you mean yeah, similarities but a different way of coming to it? Yeah, right, right, exactly. You know what I mean? There's some, there's some, some beats that are the same, but certainly not going in the right, you know, the same directions exactly. Well, I think this, I think it'd be surprising then if they do make a, a third film to see whether they follow the similar kind of beats. I reckon yeah. they will. Yeah. We'll have to see. Very good then. All right. Well, let's see what you got. That I want to hear where you're going. Let's go, let's let's have your long term. Okay. Well, Sark's forces had decimated Earth's defenses. The technology in his war vehicles defies all traditional physics and lays waste to all who stand against them. Quora had solved the damage done to the internet and managed to block out Sark, but it is a never-ending fight to keep him out. 
She approaches Sam, who'd been overseeing NCOM's continuing help that they'd been giving to civilians. Quora explains she needed to go back into the computer world if they hoped to fully defeat Sark. I had a feeling this would happen, says Sam, and he explains to Alan Bradley the plan. Alan helps them and watches they are downloaded back into the computer. When they return to the system, they can see the devastation Sark has caused here. Then, off in the distance, they see a single light cycle approaching. Wary of an attack, they wait as the rider approaches. Removing his helmet, Sam is pleased to see the young face of Alan Bradley. I am Tron, says the figure. I'm glad you're here. And that's my ending. Very cool. Mm. Well, now, so uh, maybe some more similarities uh, in this section than there were in the other ones. Well, this is sort of like the first time this has happened. There's been there's usually bits and pieces similarities like in one section or not, but there's been like, I think, minor similarities in all sections on this one. Yeah, yeah, this one's definitely the most. All right, so the world is in chaos. The Master Clue program has wreaked havoc in an attempt to perfect the world. Traffic lights are shut down, planes fall out of the sky, bank accounts are erased, computer programs run rampant the world over. Sam and Cora quickly realize they need to defeat the new MCP, and they can only do so in the grid. Rushing back to Flynn's arcade, they relaunch the grid and re-enter the world of Tron. When they arrive, they are greeted by a resurrected Tron. (laughs) Who leads them to the new MCP? Realizing that the only way to stop the new Master Clue program is to purge the drive for perfection from it, Sam and Cora join hands and then step into the program, merging their consciousnesses with it. The combination of Sam's mind and Cora's unique ISO programming is too much for the Master Clue program, and in a spectacular flash, the entire system shuts down. As it does, the whole world goes black. The entire virtual network of the Earth has been demolished. Computers, electricity, the web, it's all a thing of the past now. The clock has been reset on planet Earth. Very nice. Yeah, so as you can see, a few similarities there with them going into the grid and meeting Tron, but, you know, I'm no, a little No, no, I like it, and I can just imagine somewhere Snake Plissken is smiling as everything goes back, <laughs> everything switches off. Well, I will tell you this. I have an after-the-credits scene. <gasps> oh, have I just bought it? Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go on. Hit me with the after-the-credits scene, Mike. All right. 100 years after the Day of Darkness, the world is still a dangerous place. After the loss of power that sent the world back to the Bronze Age, disease, crime, and catastrophe ran rampant for a time before burning themselves out. The human populace was halved. But with chaos comes a cleansing. The problems of overpopulation were solved. The world began to reset as nature found a balance. The earth is still uneasy, but it's healing. Then one day, a man walks into one of the largest human encampments and begins to heal the sick and feed the hungry. People everywhere begin to follow him as he travels the land and brings people together. Eventually, over the eons, one name becomes known far and wide as the man who brought peace back to Earth, the name of Tron. Oh, that is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that is one of the things. You'd have that, You'd have the Tron fill. Some people leave and then have that after the credits. And people go, oh, my God. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I definitely ended it on more of a down note, which I don't yeah, always yeah. necessarily do. But I kind of wanted to have this. That wasn't my original intention. I just liked the way the story kind of went organically. But yeah. I, I had I'd sort of wanted to have like this, you know, this this sort of ending where in the end, the, the good side kind of wins. So I thought, you know, sometimes it takes a resetting of the entire planet, yeah, yeah. not just the grid. But in the end, everything will become better for it. And Tron can see the programming language of the world. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So it could make for a neat little uh, after the credit scene, I think. Yeah. And that fits in with the theory that some people have that we're all living in a hologram. There you go. Yeah. That's right. It could just be reset. Maybe we've just confirmed it. Oh, no. <laughs> 
Well, there you go. So those are our endings, uh, similar as they may have been in some cases. But uh, Phil, do you have any Tronivia for us? Oh, <laughs> Where to find the underline for this I, one? Where's the switch off button? I couldn't resist. Oh, Tron. Fantastic. Okay, <laughs> shooting the film took just 64 days. Wow. However, post-production took 68 weeks. Jeez. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a film yeah. that lives in post-production. Uh, all the suits that they wear when they're on the grid, you know, they, have, they all light up. Uh, it wasn't like the original film where they shot it all in black and white and then they painted all the, the neon on every single film frame. This, these one, the suits had lithium batteries to power the lights, but each battery only lasted for 12 minutes. So they, had to, they really had to time when they switched them on when they wow. were filming. That must have been yeah. a giant pain yeah. in the butt. And also they got really hot. So on any bare skin, if they touched it wrong, they'd end up getting, you know, shocks and things. I think Olivia Wilde got a few because she had, like, bare arms and shoulders. Hmm. And also they couldn't uh, sit down when they were wearing them. They just had to lean against boards because the circuitry was so delicate. Oh, that's annoying. Uh, The wardrobe budget, therefore, was $13 million. Holy cow. That's more than some – I mean, most independent films only have that as a budget for the entire film. It was also the most expensive film ever made so far by a first-time director as it cost $170 million. Wow, and this is this will make feel feel old. Uh, well, my, won't make me got no bearing on my age. <laughs> but uh, neither Olivia Wilde or Gareth Headland were born when the original Tron was released in 1982. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, that's, now, I'm like that's... them as well. I, oof, I was right, you don't even remember it, right? <laughs> Tra, what's it called, Trahan? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I have to say, I, I, I mean, I'm copping to my age here, but I have obviously like like you and like many, many people who love Tron from when they were kids, I, I have fond memories of it. But I, I do remember um, my dad, I, I grew up in Florida. My dad worked at Disney World at the time and we got to go see a sneak preview um, of Tron before it was released wow. on the Disney World uh, property. I, I, I don't know where on Disney World they showed it. I know we were inside the park. Somewhere in my jumbled memories, it, it feels like we watched it inside. The, it's a small a small world ride, which I know is not accurate. <laughs> um, but I do remember very strongly seeing it uh, as a kid in Disney World somewhere and with my dad and just being absolutely blown away by it. So, you know, it is a special film to me. I love it on a purely film level, but it does also have some really great memories attached to it for me. And I think that is part of why I, I will always be a fan of the Tron universe, yeah. regardless of whether the films are the greatest films in the world. Yeah, because that, that's a very cool memory. But yeah, Tron, I love Tron, but I can see its flaws. Right. Because it's, it's quite slow in places and it's, uh, right. you might can wonder, but it just technically it looks so different and the whole concept of going into a computer, because back then computers were still almost magical. Right. You know, that's making me sound old, isn't it? But it's, they were still quite new and fresh. Uh, and, the, and the graphics you could see, obviously, in the original Tron were nothing like you were getting on computers or arcade games at that time. Right. So it was just nice seeing this fantasy world, which was actually something within our grasp almost. Yeah, yeah. And, man, I love that Tron arcade game too. I, they oh, yeah. so many yeah, quarters yeah. into that thing. That was my go-to arcade game. I loved it. Yeah, I used to love it when you go to an arcade. They had that one there. Good times. All right, well, that is Tron Legacy as well as Super Troopers, and those are our endings. Time now to move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we look back upon the last century of Hollywood and pick a year and discuss our top 10 favorite films. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your famous time machine and tell us what the world was like in 1958? Yes, 1958. The British Prime Minister was Harold Macmillan, and the U.S. President was Dwight D. Eisenhower. The satellite Sputnik 1 fell to Earth from its orbit and burnt up on re-entry. 14-year-old Bobby Fischer won the US Chess Championship. Gottfried Kirk 
Christiansen files a patent for the Lego brick. Awesome. And I believe he made a, a little bit of money for that. Yeah, I think he did okay with that. Yeah, yeah. First, the first US satellite, Explorer 1, was launched into orbit. The TIE-B bomb, a 7,600-pound Mark 15 hydrogen bomb, was lost in the waters off Savannah, Georgia. Oh. That's, that's, uh, that's a re- that's, reassuring one, isn't it? Yeah, that seems problematic. Yeah. How do you who, lose a hydrogen bomb? I, I know, and who's the guy who then has to go see the, yeah, you know, right. the head and go, uh, Chief, that uh, bath bomb yeah. we just had, right, right. it's gone. Exactly. Right, that, it was there exactly. a minute ago. Exactly. Uh, seven Man United football players were among the 21 people killed in the Munich air disaster. Ruth Carroll Taylor was the first African-American woman hired as a flight attendant. Her career only lasted for six months, though, due to another discrimination enforced, the airline's ban on married flight attendants. Oh, there you go. Uh, the U.S. Army inducts Elvis Presley. Castro's Revolutionary Army begins its attack on Havana. Pizza Hut is founded. Uh, the plastic hula hoop was first marketed in the U.S., you know, for kids. Right. And uh, David Niven ends up starring in separate tables, and he, the year later he wins an Oscar. It's the only film he ever gets an Oscar for, but I thought I would give that a mention because my friend Peter's a huge David Niven fan, and he asked me to. Well, there you go. Yes. But no, what better reason could there be than that? Indeed. We also saw the births of quite a few famous people. Julian Sands, Alec Baldwin, Miranda Richardson, Gary Oldman, Holly Hunter, Sharon Stone, Peter Capaldi, Bruce Campbell, Michelle Pfeiffer, Kevin Bacon, Angela Bassett, Steve Gutenberg, Madeline Stowe, Tim Burton, Jennifer Tilly, Viggo Mortensen, Tim Robbins, Robert Patrick, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Uh, we unfortunately we lost the great Tyron Power uh, and Ronald Coleman. And 1958 saw the film debuts of some, you know, minor actors. Jack Nicholson, Oliver Reed, Claudia Cardinale, Ian Holm, Christopher Plummer and Vanessa Redgrave. Very cool. Uh, quite a good year, actually. Yes, indeed. And not a bad year for films either. Yeah, some uh, very well-known films and some very well-made films and some cheesy B-movies, but some... Some good ones in them as well. Yeah, spoiler alert, some of those cheesy B-movies might be on my list. Yeah, and a few, my, few of them on mine as well. I had a feeling. <laughs> okay, then, do you want to go first? And what's your number 10? Okay, well, my number 10 is a pretty easy one. It is Hercules, starring Steve Reeves. It was an Italian production. It's best known for being super, super cheesy. Um, it's not a great film, but it is one that I watched when I was a kid. Um, that's a bit of a theme in my list today. A lot of these are movies that I enjoyed when I was a kid. It's a bit of a nostalgia trip for me. Um, just want to point out, I was I wasn't a kid in 1958. I wasn't even born yet, but I watched a lot of these. <laughs> yeah, good good point. Yeah, I was neither born or... Growing up in the summers, I watched a lot of TV. I watched a lot of movies on, you know, TBS and those types of stations. So this was one I saw a lot. So it, it ekes onto my list. No, it's excellent reason. Yeah, and a few of them, a few of the films on my list are similar, uh, especially my number 10. It is The Blob, which was the feature film debut of Steve McQueen. We know the one. Meteorite Land has got this small little blob thing is, but it eats people and then gets bigger and bigger, rolls around a town eating people, people get blobbed, you know, eaten, melted. Uh, it's just great effects. There's the famous thing of the blob coming out of a cinema and people running out, first of all, and going like that. I just I just love the effects and I just love those 50s B-movies. Yeah. My number 10. You know, it's funny because the blob actually is very similar to, to my life, except I don't eat people. But, I mean, it definitely in my life is kind of the story of a guy who just rolls around eating more and more and getting bigger and bigger. I mean, that's, that's, I, I can see the parallels is all I'm saying. Oh, my God. It, on the wiki page, it even says based on the life of it. How does it, how did it know? <laughs> I, I don't know. And once again, though, it's another film. There's another remake that has been in development hell for a while. But we might see the blob on the big screen at some point over the next few years. I would love that. 
Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is uh, another kind of cheesy 50s, uh, you know, fantasy film. It is The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, uh, mostly notable for being uh, for featuring the work of the great Ray Harryhausen, some of the stop motion effects. Uh, Again, one I watched as a kid a lot in, in, you know, in the rerun channels uh, and I enjoyed it greatly. And I don't I don't think you can go too wrong with any Ray Harryhausen making it on your list. Yeah, that's why it's also my number nine as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I quite like it. It's uh, not my favorite Sinbad one, but as you say, it's you watch these things mainly for the Harryhausen moments. You're just waiting for the big monster or the, the animated statue to come to life and right. do some fighting while while the humans just stand off looking at them going, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then one gets picked <laughs> up and suddenly turns into claymation, stop motion, and you see the legs wiggling and they get killed. Right, right. It's just what you want when you're a kid, though. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. pretty much. So what's your number eight? My number eight is Houseboat, starring Cary Grant and Sophia Loren. And it's sort of a comedy about a man and his children and a woman who, you know, is not doesn't begin as love as his love interest. They they sort of end up on this creaky old houseboat living together and comedy ensues from there. Uh, and this is, you know, born purely out of my love of Cary Grant. I, you know, I grew up, he was one of my favorite Hollywood stars. I watched a lot of his movies when I was young. This, I, I like a lot of his comedies. You know, this was just kind of a good, easily accessible sort of, you know, family, people thrown together in a, in a tough circumstance yeah. comedy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's light fun. It's nothing great, but it's an enjoyable film that I have, I have fond memories of. Yeah, I've got a vague recollection of seeing that one, but uh, I don't remember it in any detail, but I, just, I like both Sophie Loren and Cary Grant. Right, right. Nice one. Okay, uh, my number eight is The Fly, uh, which is had a screenplay by James Clavell and stars David Heats and Patricia Owens, Vincent Price. And we most of us will know the story. Guy develops teleportation pods. A fly gets in, teleports, he begins turning into flies. And this was the original, the first version of it. And it's great. Cool, old school horror, body horror. And David Cronenberg obviously made... His version, which was also brilliant, but I, I do have a soft spot for the original. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film. Good pick. Well, my number seven is probably the cheesiest film on this list, but I like it anyway. And it is Attack of the 50-Foot Woman oh, starring yeah, yeah. Allison Hayes. And, it, it, you know, it's it's definitely one of those films. It's not a great movie, um, but I have very, very distinct memories of watching it when I was really young. I think, honestly, it was one of the first really kind of – over-the-top sort of science fiction type movies that I remember watching on TV as a kid. I just I just really remember those images of that giant woman kind of rampaging through town. And, it, like you know, it's just such an iconic sort of image. And even though yeah. it's a B-movie and there's nobody famous in it, it's really famous. You see the poster showing up in movies and there's tributes to it. And they use the name The Attack of the 50-Foot Blank and a lot of sort of homages or kind of comedy things. You know, so clearly I think it had an impact, not necessarily for the filmmaking, but just for the... Sort of, impact. Right, yeah. right. It was a good pop culture moment, and I, I think it's a lot of fun. So that's my number seven. Yeah, it's. Uh, I always like films where people are getting, you know, grown to huge sizes or shrunk down. Yeah, yeah, those so are fun. Lots of good, yep. good stuff, and even the effects in those old films. I, I, I do like the old, yeah. the old style effects. Absolutely. Okay, this uh, my number seven is A Night to Remember, which is a British film based on the final night of the Titanic. So it's basically people on the, uh, the Titanic. We know the story. It's a lot more enjoyable than James Cameron's Titanic because there's actual drama and you're going, oh my God, what's going to happen? And there's all the British stiff upper lip going, you know, no, I can't even think of any British stiff upper lip quotes. But it's, it's, it's full <laughs> Some of, Brit you are. Yeah, it's full of all the British stiff upper lip. I, I missed all of the classes about, you know, stiff upper lipness back in school. Uh, so, uh, well, there you go. I don't know what well. it's like, but this is a, you know, a British classic. Indeed it is. And in fact, it is my number six. 
Oh, excellent. Brilliant. So we are clearly on the same page a little yes, bit in yes, our 1950s yes. films. Uh, you know, I, I was I was as a kid, I was fascinated by the Titanic, and honestly, that's never gone away. I, I, think I will most, watch most kids are, aren't they? I yeah, mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah, my daughter is as well. It's crazy. I don't think it's unique to me, obviously, mm-hmm. but I was definitely one of those kids, you know. And so I, I've watched this movie, and and it is really a good retelling of the Titanic. Obviously, it doesn't go into the length that, that Cameron's does, but Cameron's really is a different kind of film. It's a romance. It just yeah, happens yeah, to be it's set true. You can tell Titanic. different stories in the same events, can't you? Right. This is much more of a sort of overall telling of the, the sinking of the ship and a few of the personalities involved. But yeah. it is a really good film, uh, especially for the time period it was made. I think it holds up really, really well. Uh, sort of a classic Hollywood take on this famous disaster. And, and I enjoy it. So that's my number six. Yeah, there's something about those old films where they used the big water tank. Yeah. To film some of the scenes. I mean, you can, you know, it's like scale model somewhere, but it just, it's just got a nice raw feel to it, and you just, uh, I just, I like it. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay, my number six is The Vikings, uh, directed by Richard Fleischer and starring Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas and Janet Lee and Ernest Borgnine. But it's, uh, I remember watching it as kids. My dad loved it, and used to sit and watch it on a wet weekend when it's raining. And I love the bits that always blow the horns. It's and that basically plays on all the the soundtrack and everything but lots of vikings fighting keg douglas gets his eye ripped out by a hawk or an eagle and it's just great lots of lots of people not liking each other then getting back with each other and lots of sword fights what more do you want what more can you ask for well my number five is not that film but it does also star janet lee and it is Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, uh, which Welles co- wrote, directed, and starred in. And it also starred the great Charlton Heston, of course. And it is a film noir classic. Now, I know that some people might expect this to be higher on the list. I will say this. I love the the opening scene of Touch of Evil. I mean, it's taught in film classes. Yeah. I saw it the first time in a film class. And it's it's for a reason. It is, it is a, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking. It's flawless, isn't it, the way it's done? It, it really is. The rest of the film, however... I like. I, I do enjoy it, and it, it's, it's a good film, but I find it's a bit long, and, and a couple places it gets a little slow for me. Mm-hmm. Um, o- overall, it's a film I enjoy, but mostly because that opening sequence with the bomb in the trunk of a car, that that is just sheer brilliance. So it makes it high on my list because of that, but as far as films that I just love through and through, that's why it's in the middle of my list instead of in a higher position. That makes sense. I like your your logic behind that. Okay, my uh, my number five is The Hidden Fortress, which is directed by Akira Kurosawa and stars Toshiro Mifune. And it's basically a couple of peasants uh, end up discovering some soldiers and there's a fortress and there's lots of things going on, lots of cool fights. It's got the beautiful way things are shot by Akira Kurosawa. It's just, it's, it's just where any of his films are just worth putting on and watching because they're just so well made and the acting is brilliant and it's often quite funny as well, but the fights are short sharp and to the point and also some elements of the hidden fortress did inspire george lucas because uh, uh, c3po and r2d2 are based on the two uh, peasants in the film that's, that's right that's my number five good choice i will admit my kurosawa uh, viewings are not where they should be and i haven't seen that one yet unfortunately no problem all right my number four is the defiant ones starring tony curtis and Sidney poitier and um this is a great film it's you know it's two prisoners chained together one white one black they don't like each other uh but they manage to escape and they go on the run 
while chained together. And so they have to learn to work together. And of course, as happens in these films, eventually they begin to like and respect each other. Um, great, a great timeless story. It was the influence for movies I love, like the 80s science fiction classic Enemy Mine. And um, it, it's just a really powerful message to, you know, it certainly has a nice, uh, I mean, in this day and age, it's actually still a very, uh, a very timely message about yeah. racism and, and, you know, that people can get along no matter what their skin color. So uh, great performances by Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier. Uh, just a really powerful film, but 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 not a, a film that's powerful because it's just beating over the head with a message. It's a really good sort of action-adventure drama thriller yeah, yeah. that also has a good message in it, and that's my favorite kind. Uh, lovely. I, I know I've seen the film, but I, can, I don't remember it. It's one of those films where I know I've watched it. So yeah, I didn't. It would, I'm sure it would have made my list if I could have remembered it. But I'll have sure, to. Sure, sure. I'll have to get that watched again. It's so definitely worth a rewatch. It's yeah. a good film. Good stuff. Well, my number four is one called Ice Cold and Alex. It's directed by Jaylee Thompson. Stars John Mills, and it's basically about uh, some British soldiers who have been told it's in the Second World War. They're told to uh, leave Tobruk because it's about to be put under siege, and they need to evacuate to Alexandria. So they head off in an old ambulance and drive across the desert back to British lines. As they go along, they pick up a South African officer. They end up having to go through a, a minefield, watch the you know, petrol, and it's red hot as well. And all you can think about is getting back to Alexandria where they can have an ice cold one a beer. And it's just really tense when they're going through the minefield and they've got to get it, the ambulance going up a sand dune. And it's, oh, it's, it's got some great moments. And again, the British stiff upper lipness, which I, I can't do, uh, <laughs> about them just getting through, you know, the gumption to get through the desert. And will they get back to have that cold beer? Very cool. Well, my number three has already appeared on your list. I was a little surprised with how, how low on the list it was, but that's okay. Uh, it is The Fly. Uh, and, you know, everything you said about it was was pretty much accurate. Great 50s sci-fi. I just – this is another one that had a real visceral impact on me as a kid. I remember yeah. watching it and that, that end scene with the little fly with the human head going, help me, yeah, help yeah. me. Man, that really knocked my socks off. Like that is one of those indelible film moments that has stuck with me my entire life. And I will still – on occasion, bust that out as a quote. If I come across an opportunity to use it, I will throw it out there and see who recognizes it. It is just one of those moments that has always stuck with me. And and so the film as a whole, you know, it's been a while since I've watched it. I don't remember if it, if it's if it's that great, but yeah, yeah. just that ending to me was such a gut punch uh, that I loved as a kid. I just remember seeing that and going, "Oh my god, that's so <laughs> yeah. crazy!" It, it is it is funny that ending and that phase. It's one of those things which. It sort of like permeated the human subconscious because lots of people know that and about the guy, the fly with the, the man's head, even if they haven't seen the film. Yes, yes, just, exactly. You can often get the reference and yet I've never seen it. Right, right. That's that's what I love. So that's that's why it's my number three. Brilliant. Well, my number three is a Hammer Horror film directed by uh, Terence Fisher and it is Dracula, although I think it was called Horror of Dracula over in the US. And it stars Christopher Lee as Dracula, Peter Cushing, Michael Goff, and we all know, you know, Christopher Lee, Dracula, Hammer Horror, you know, really, really red blood, castles, beautiful, busty women, Dracula, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing having a face-off. Oh, classic. You know, doesn't get better than that. But yeah, Dracula. That's my number three. That's a great choice, and I wanted to put it on my list, but I have actually never seen it. I will say that the Hammer Horror films, for as well-known as they are, are a major gap in my filmography. I have next to no knowledge of them in terms of actually having seen them. I'm very familiar with them and have read about them, yeah. um, but in terms of actual viewing, I'm I'm way behind. So one of these days I'll dig into them. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. It's funny the Hammer Horror films over here because I haven't seen them since I was quite young. 
and grown up with them. It's almost like there's a comfort to watching them, even though right. you know it's it's a horror film. Yeah, because it's it's not the it's not the all out gore, even though there's always loads and loads of blood, but it's so red and so vivid. You know, it's not blood, but there's this like it's a sense of nostalgia, I think, as well when you watch them, taking you back to happy memories and things. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Okay, so we're went to the top two, are we now? Yes, and my number two has also appeared on your list. Uh, once again, I was disappointed with how low it was, but I'll I'll let it slide. Um, <laughs> and it is the Blob, starring Steve McQueen. I mean, I love this movie. I really do. I even like the nineteen eighties remake. I really uh, which liked is it not as well. A great the film, with the but yeah, uh, I just love the 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 blob the concept of it it's just yeah. it's just this big blob like i mean it's it's it is exactly what the title describes it has this big pink blob that eats people and i don't know there's something about it it's just unlike any other movie monster that we've ever seen it's so unique yeah. all all it wants to do is eat and there's no reasoning with it because it's just a blob right it's just a big giant you know blob <laughs> and you know i love the ending i love the way they defeat it um i would love to see a new one with with cgi effects i mean i think they could really do a lot with it uh but and steve Mc Queen is just so cool, but this is just a movie. Another one I saw as a kid, and it's always stuck with me. And just such a cool, unique monster. I, I don't know. I just I just dig the film. It's a lot of fun, and I think it holds up really well. It's a, it's a it's a really great throwback. Watching it take place in the fifties is is, uh, is a really cool experience. So that's my number two. An excellent choice. Okay, well, my number two has been on your list, and it is Awesome Wells's Touch of Evil. I had a feeling it might still show up on your list. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I do like it. everything you said. I can understand as well the reasons why. You know, it does feel a bit long, but I always feel after the opening, which is so, so, so good. That's It's just basically a short film, isn't it? And then it goes off <laughs> right. into this. It goes really dark as well because you've got uh, – we end up seeing Marlene Dietrich as well in places. And the bit when Janet Lee ends up in the, the motel and it's got uh, Dennis Weaver playing the night manager who's very, very strange. Right. Because I remember watching it thinking it's going to go one way. Because I knew about the opening and that was pretty much all of it. And then it just went another way and it just kept getting worse. And you're going, well, how is she going to get away from them? Oh, my awesome Wells as well is just filthy and disgusting and horrible. But he's so clever in it. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So it's, if you've not seen it, you've got to go see it. Just even if you just watch the opening 10 minutes, that scene is brilliant. I mean, it's worth seeing the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Just I think it's good to know that the opening is, is definitely the high point of the film. Yeah. All right. Well, my number one, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, is going to be your number one. I, I really think this one's kind of a no-brainer, but uh, let's see if it is or not. My number one is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. <gasps> oh, my God. It's my number one as well. <laughs> I feel dizzy about that. It, it kind of had to be because it's an amazingly brilliant film. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. This is actually one, you know, I grew up watching Hitchcock films, and for some reason, Vertigo was one. I, I saw bits and pieces of it when I was young, but I never watched the whole thing. And so in in my adult years, I don't remember how long ago now. I'd say within the last decade, though, I watched it for the first time and really not knowing what to expect because it's it's not a film that most people really know the story of all that much. They just yeah. know there's Jimmy Stewart and he's got Vertigo, but that's really about it. Yeah. But man, it is this intense, like, psychosexual, obsessive a uh, really dark, dark film, but in a way that's thrilling and exciting. And man, it is so intense and so great. And, and Jimmy Stewart's performance is one for the ages. And I really love this film. Well, that's, I had, it was a similar way with me. I remember seeing bits and pieces of it, and I didn't really know what the story. As you said, didn't know what the, couldn't figure out the story really, apart from James Stewart to go all trippy and it'd be you just see his face floating in those cool. I just love the colours of his faces and the patterns and the light on yeah. him is all psychedelic and crazy. Yeah, and then like you, I, was, I mean, I saw it must have been then in my late twenties, and then about I think I last watched it about seven or eight years ago, and it was like it sort of 
everything just gelled properly. I suddenly went, ah, oh, and it all came together. And you realise yeah. what a what a horrible dark person James Stewart is, isn't it? As well with his right. the way he treats right. Kim Novak. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this other story going on as well, and there's things interweaving, and it's oh, a dark, dark film. But so yeah. got so beautifully shot. There's so many scenes in it where you could just you just want to take a snapshot and you could hang it on the wall. Yeah, and a killer ending too. Oh, I mean, hell it's really yeah. just yeah. it's just so. So great. I mean, it really is a masterpiece. I, I love a lot of Hitchcock's films, but Vertigo is really one of the ones that, you know, is – I think it's one of the ones of his that's the most famous, but not not necessarily the least seen. But like, Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. A lot of people have seen Psycho yeah. or Bird, The Birds or Rear Window, and then Vertigo is up there in terms of the people knowing about it. But I feel like a lot less people have watched it than they have some of those other big films. But it's just as good as I that. think it's the one where you have like the local cinema, you know, the – the indie cinema where they have posters showing Vertigo's on and you walk past it going, oh, I must go see that. Yeah. And then you never actually go and see it. Right, right. But it, you really should. I don't know what it is. Some, some films are like that, but people going, oh, I, know, really, I need to see that film. And you never yeah. actually do watch that film. Right. Well, if you haven't seen Vertigo, cannot recommend it highly enough. It is just absolutely superb. Yeah, brilliant use of the Dolly Zoom. Yes, yes. yes. So there you go. All right. Well, we were in quite a bit of sync on our list uh, for this year. So that is 1958. And uh, that's also about the end of this episode. So, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we are going to be talking about in next week's episode. Next week, which will be episode 61. Yes. It's going to be uh, Space Jam and the Devil's Advocate. So it's going to be a bit of Bill Murray, animated animals, basketball, and, you know, Al Pacino tearing down the screen <laughs> and the devil's advocate lots of hoo right right and keanu reeves and Charlie steeron yeah yeah it should yeah, be it's a, a fun I, episode i do like that film it didn't go down too well did it but i i quite i like i love anything i love any film with the devil's in it yeah yeah definitely it's a, it's a fun movie and, and space jam i know a lot of people out there love space jam so I, I think they'll hopefully enjoy uh whatever we come up with yes it should be good and also uh what year we'll be be discussing yeah we'll be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1985 always fun to visit the 80s Yes, it's going to be good. All right. Well, make sure you join us then. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to sign off for now. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. End of line. <laughs> Terminate user. <laughs> Before their inevitable sequels hit the big screens. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes, that right. Damn it, man. I told you to bear with me. You are not bearing okay, with me. Okay, I've got to know. Oh, and I believe recently, Mike, you went, uh, you boldly went where, what? I'm trying to phrase it into, uh, oh yeah. Okay, then, Mike, I believe you finally went to see, I keep saying finally Whoops. before I get further into it. Yeah, no, it yeah. wasn't finally. I know. Now, okay. I'm just going to say, I believe you went and, oh my God. How does it even start? What's the? <laughs> I can't remember the opening thing of Star Trek. Boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah, that's it. Okay, well the team's first proper day on the job involves. Inve- I can't talk until tonight. The team's <laughs> seriously. <laughs> While taking a statement from a murder witness, Robert sees someone watching who matches the description. Oh God, my punctuation. I need to stop putting it in there when I write it down. When taking a statement from a murder victim, Robert sees someone might. <laughs> why is it sometimes it's like this and other times it's fine they break up a counterfeit yeah see now it's infecting <laughs> me oh boy it's an aud- they break up what it's an audible virus which has just been transmitted across the <laughs> yes, Atlantic damn you and your love of Pontypool <laughs> and that of course is Tron Legacy that's right
Right. Hold on. <laughs> I've just realised the piece of paper I had with the uh, the roundup of what happens is not in my final thing. Okay, let's get to the Wikipedia. Because I'm doing the roundup of Tron Legacy. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've just done the Super Troopers one. God. Yeah. Yeah, like five minutes I ago. I panicked then, yeah. I just turned the page and couldn't see the piece of paper I usually have with the... Oh, my God. Oh, thank God for that. Pizza Hut is founded. Uh, the plastic cooler... Wait, what, what? what's founded? Pizza Hut was founded. Oh, I thought you said... I, think, <laughs> I know, I think I said it really weird. No, no, I thought you said Peter Hut, and I was like, who's who or what is Peter Hut? Peter Hut, <laughs> he's, he's Jabba's brother. He just he's, he just lives in the suburbs, though, and he he's, just does a normal he's job. He's a clerk. Yeah. He's, he's Jabba's clerk. He does no, all no, his no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't, he doesn't mix with Jabba. He doesn't like the criminal side of his family. Oh, oh right. Yeah, Jabba's right, the right. black sheep. Peter, he just works in an office as an insurance. Right. <laughs> Oh, Could you imagine anyway. that? It's a half-hour sitcom. Now what we need is an animated web anim- series with pervy Yoda and Peter Peter the Hutt interacting. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> that'd be awesome. They just meet up. They work in different businesses, but they meet up every lunchtime and talk <laughs> right. about the day. Right, exactly. Oh, God. And every time somebody walks past, Yoda's going, hmm. <laughs> right. Every time the waitress comes by, like he like tries to like force pinch her. And Peter's always like, going, no, 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 Yoda. <laughs> right. Oh, Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see it now. Well, yeah, the second yeah. series will be good. <laughs> any, any, uh, any of our uh, listeners out there who are good with uh, animation and want to have some fun, just let us know. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's just going to run and run. It's the next Rick right. and Morty. We just need right. to it's going to it's going to long outlive after the ending. It's going to be the adventures of Pervy Yoda and Peter the Hutt. Creators on Tw- twenty years from now, it's going to be on T-shirts and stuff, and they'll have conventions. And after the ending, will be a long distant memory. Yeah. And we signed a bad contract and lost all rights at some point. <laughs> right. Oh, I look forward uh, to all that. Okay, so uh, anyway, also, just also give the, me a cl- uh, yeah. wait. Give me a clean take on Pizza Hut again. Uh, Pizza Hut is founded. <laughs> Still sounds like you're saying Peter Hut, but I think it's just it's just your accent. I'll do it one more time. Pizza okay. Hut is founded. Now it's like Pizza Pizza Hut. <laughs> pizza Hut is founded. The pasta okay, just, hula- just do me one. I'm sorry, one more clean take. <laughs> what the <did it> wear? <laughs> Uh, the plaster hula, the plaster, the pl- get to the end of this. Still got Bert and Dest to go. Okay. 